This week, we talked to Andy Saunders, the man who has completely changed the way we look at the Apollo program. And he shed some light on some of the human moments which took place during Apollo 16, the moon landing which took place 50 years ago this week. Please keep in contact with us at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And a big thanks to everyone who has joined us on Patreon. It's very much appreciated. But right now, enjoy episode 86 of the Space and Things podcast. Listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 86 of our podcast. We've got a lot of things to get through at the front end of our podcast, so let's get cracking. Emily, how was Yuri's night at Kennedy Space Center? I had a wonderful time. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was really fun to just get out and do something after the last couple of years, you know, and uh, it was really neat to see everybody and to, and to do that again. And Story Musgrave was there and gave a heck of a lecture <laughs> while yeah. we were there. He did. Yeah, it was it was pretty nuts. But uh, <laughs> we had a great time, though. Uh, it, it was very enjoyable. It was neat to meet a lot of people who I just read about, but I, I'm finally meeting them in, in person, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, nice. That was a lot of fun, but I had an excellent time. And it, of course, it's always exciting to uh, party under Atlantis. I mean, that, that's about as good as it gets. So I, I was having a magnificent time there. Yeah, amazing. It looked amazing. And you've been busy as well. I saw that you've put a new uh, article up on your Medium blog. Uh, I haven't got around to reading it yet because I've been pretty busy this week, but I saw the title and it looks like the kind of post I love you writing about. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, NASA just released a uh, an equity action plan and it's the first one that they've done in the history of the space agency. And it, it's a four-pronged plan and it's basically you know, to, to put into place processes, you know, so they can, you know, better identify populations that should be involved in, you know, spaceflight and things like that, you know, and a lot of the, you know, populations, including populations that, you know, aren't, you know, are English as a second language, you know, yeah, things like that. So uh, I think it's a really great step in, a, you know, the right direction for NASA to do. Unfortunately, if you look back at NASA's history, they weren't always going that route. Back in the Apollo days, they kind of, I'll be real, they had a pretty uh, abysmal track record as far as equal opportunity was concerned. But it's nice to see that, you know, they're, they're really making an effort to go in a better direction to really bring on a truly diverse workforce. I mean, obviously, I think we see it now in the types of astronauts they pick and the center directors and people like that which is great and i'm not trying to take credit from that but we need to see people in the workforce people in contractors things like that and i feel like they're trying to get more into that you know side like you know make the whole agency a little more inclusive versus just a very visible group yeah do we do are we concerned that this might just be lip service or does this look like the real deal this time to me, this looks like the real thing. It looks like they're putting actual, you know, funds and they're putting actual studies into it. I It didn't look to me like a document they just wrote up to make people happy. That's good. I was very impressed. Yeah, well, I'll make sure I give that read later. And of course, the link will be in the show notes. Now, we, we had a couple of messages for, about last week's show. First of all, uh, Laura Fozik messaged, and I hope I've said your surname correctly, Laura, but probably not. And I look forward to another email from you correcting me on that as well. Uh, but this is absolutely spot on because I always get this wrong. I always say cupola, the ISS window. I always call it the cupola, but it's not. It's the cupola. Cupola. Okay. That cupola. She is correct. That would probably make sense because it's a. Ta- uh, I believe it's an Italian component. That's exactly what she said. Uh, so I apologize. I always get that one wrong. Cupola. I'm going to try my best to remember that. Um, also, we had a, we had a couple of messages about NFTs. I still don't understand it. 
Um, but also, I noticed that Scott Kelly released an NFT. Is that what you say? <laughs> or, mi- or, or minted yeah. one and made a load of money I for, have no for idea. Ukraine. But he, he released an NFT. I'll, I'm going to use that. And we also had a couple of messages, Emily, about last week's ending where I cut it off abruptly. People thought, <laughs> people very kindly messaged me, letting me know that there was an error in the podcast and I'd cut off the ending. But it was done intentionally. It was a joke which clearly failed. And I'd like to, in particular, apologise to Todd, who said I ruined his week uh, because he he looks forward every week to you saying, in space, no one can hear you mean. He said it's his favourite part of the week. It'd it'd really be a shame if somebody messed that up at the end of today's show. (laughs) Or I just change it again. (laughs) Yeah, it would kind of be a shame, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Anyway, thank you for everyone to get, for getting in contact. We love it. Uh, and so it's time to get on to this week's main feature. If anyone has been on Twitter over the last few years and followed anything related to the 50th anniversary of the Apollo program, then you almost have certainly heard of our guest or seen their work. Andy Saunders has become one of the world's foremost experts of NASA digital restoration. He's been taking the original files and used cutting-edge techniques so that we've been able to see things like never before, and we've been able to learn a ridiculous amount of new information in the process, even after all these years, and for people like us who think we know it all. It was an absolute delight to talk to Andy last week about his upcoming book, Apollo Remastered, and about the human moments which are often hard to find in the Apollo program but he's found some great ones to enhance for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 mission, which is this week. Fantastic! Percy Precision is planet one on the planet of Descartes. Hello, Andy. I'm absolutely delighted you're with us today. Let's start right at the beginning. How did this journey start in which you've become the expert in digital restoration of NASA photographs? Um, Well, I mean, it it goes back to childhood really i mean i've always had a love of actually anything that could fly from frisbees and boomerangs <laughs> paper airplanes through to helicopters jet fighter planes but obviously the ultimate as a little boy was rockets absolutely you know these huge things the power the noise the the speed so i'd always had a bit of a fascination with rockets and i've always had this kind of unusual draw to to the moon and i can't really explain why that is. I may have been a werewolf in a past life, perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> I've always been fascinated with the moon. And I remember, again, as a child, looking up at the moon through a very small telescope and just knowing that it was so far away, but instantly be able to get quite close and it became 3D. And it was almost like I could fly over the surface. You know, I got it so far away, it became this other world in space. And when I learned then that actually, People have flown over the moon. In fact, we've walked on the moon. I was just absolutely fascinated. And this was kind of late 1970s, early 1980s. So there was no video recorders in the UK anyway. There was three TV channels. So the chance of an Apollo documentary popping up on TV was pretty much zero. And of course, there was no internet. So I remember as I got a bit older, I'd just get the bus into town and go to the library and just devour anything I could find on Apollo to try and look. I just wanted to see it. I wanted to see who were these people? What did the, how big was that rocket? What did the spacecraft look like? And even then, as, as, a, as a youngster, I was struck by how we, we see the same images over and over again. The quality wasn't very good. And particularly this fact that I wanted to see Neil Armstrong on the moon. You know, he was the first, mm. this momentous moment in history. I want to see him undertaking this this moment and it didn't exist which as i got older i mean as i've got older I've still got this kind of childlike fascination with apollo but also my kind of knowledge of photography is in, has improved and understood the processing techniques lots of different processing techniques and that's when i decided to try and apply this quite unusual technique to try and produce an image of armstrong on the moon that was better than we've seen before so it was really that image that that started everything for me. Right. As I was processing it, I, I just couldn't believe the amount of detail that I was able to pull out. So I was using the highest quality source footage. And it's this stacking principle of, of stacking lots of frames on top of each other. And it's something that astrophotographers use. A lot of your listeners are probably aware of some of the software you can use to do this. And I just thought, well, if you can apply this 
principle to the planet Mars. Why can't we put Neil Armstrong through this yeah. and see what comes out? And I just couldn't believe the detail. And, and being a big space fan, I knew what Armstrong looked like. A lot of people might not. But what struck me is not only was there this face through the visor, that's Neil Armstrong. And it, it just hit me. It was like he was in this office. It was two o'clock in the morning. Everyone had gone to bed when I do all my editing. And it was like I'd almost gone back in time and I was right alongside Alden in the lunar module looking out the window and watching this incredible moment unfold in detail that no one's wow. ever seen before. And I was just hooked from that. Yeah. You know, that's what really started everything for me. Yeah, this is amazing. Love it. Awesome. So we just talked about one of your most famous discoveries. Uh, you famously uh, created, obviously, the, the clearest image of Neil Armstrong on the moon. Uh, you've also helped debunk the myth about Grissom's Mercury uh, mission. And you also proved uh, exactly how far Alan Shepard's golf ball traveled on the moon. For our listeners, here's a spoiler. It was not miles and miles and miles. No. <laughs> <laughs> but what is personally your, your favorite moment? Uh, I think it will take a lot to, to top that, really. Just the historical significance. Um, but honestly, there's, there's something amazing in so many of the images and from every mission. And one of the things I like to do, particularly around the 50th anniversaries, is get these missions in the news, get people to talk about them and to learn about mm. them because your average person knows of Apollo 11, knows of Neil Armstrong. You know, some of the comments I've had with the, with the Shepherd golf ball, for example, oh, I've, I've just seen an image of, of uh, Neil Armstrong playing golf on the moon. Yeah. Some people think, well, <laughs> surely only Neil Armstrong has been. You know, they don't know there was an Apollo 8, which was the first time we went to the moon. So I try to uncover something of interest for every, in, in every mission and try and, and get it in the news and, and, like say, try and put my passion onto other people perhaps and make them more aware of these incredible moments in, in history. So there's so many. I mean, they took 35,000 photographs. There's 10 hours of the kind of DAC footage, the 16mm movie footage, if you like. So you can imagine the amount of, of goodness that's in in all of that. Yeah, I love the fact you've been trying to get things in the news. And you've been successful in doing so, especially in the UK. I don't know what it's been like in the US, but these articles have been front page on the BBC website. So, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled that you've been able to do that and get people talking about it. Now, obviously, currently, it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 mission, and there's an article you've written for the Air Force magazine in which you delve into some of the personal moments of Charlie Duke on the moon. And while this one perhaps doesn't have some of the earth-shattering moments of your other anniversary releases. I think it's pretty special. So tell us a little bit more about it. Are, are you hoping that it might get picked up by national press again? Hopefully it will, because it's one of those very few, few human moments in Apollo. So, of course, these Apollo astronauts were steely-eyed, cold, focused engineers, test pilots, fighter pilots. They were trained to almost subdue emotion. So mm. there are very few human moments throughout the whole of Apollo, really. But yeah, Charlie Duke is someone that gave us some of those. Uh, right at the end of the final EVA, he took some time to leave some mementos on the moon, that things that were important to him, focused predominantly around his family and his time at the Air Force. So this article's in, in uh, Air Force magazine. And he ended up at NASA via the Air Force. So he was in ARPS, which is the Aerospace Research Pilot School in 1964 at Edwards Air Force Base. And his class was 64C. And this is a class of 12. And in it, there was Charlie Duke, there was Al Warden, there was um, Stu Rooser. So of the class of 12, three would eventually go to the moon. Charlie Duke would walk upon the moon. Wow. And even the commandant was Chuck Yeager. So, you know, it's a pretty special class and <laughs> yeah. it's called 64C. So towards the end of the EVA, they got back to the vicinity of the lunar module and Charlie Duke, we know, would also take a family portrait with him. So we, in his PPK, where he, he had to declare the personal items he was taking, one of them was a family picture. And he also said he took two medallions for the Air Force because it was the Air Force's 25th anniversary. And he took this moment and found this appropriate place to lay a family photograph of the Dukes on the lunar surface. And I'm sure a lot of people have seen this image. And I just love it because it's, it is one of those few human moments. It really hits you that people went to the moon, 
it's this little square of colour, something recognisable of a family, a family portrait taken in the backyard next to a footprint on the moon against this desolate backdrop. It just really hits home. So I, I love this photograph. And that was what was important to him to leave these things. He then took a few steps forward and then he dropped a piece of beta cloth on which he'd written 64C. Now we've seen this before in photographs, but with the high resolution scans and some digital editing, we can see it even more clearly. And then he took another few steps and he left uh, a medallion. And we were aware that he took two medallions and that one is believed, well, it is in the um, United States Air Force Museum in Dayton, in Ohio. And it was believed that these were a pair, a matching pair. So again, with the high resolution scans of this coin that we can see in the lunar dust, we can zoom now right in and enhance it. And we can now see some terrific detail on the face of the coin, which we haven't been able to see before. And you can read departments of the Air Force around the outside. The Air Force crest is there in the middle. So I got the museum to send me a high resolution photograph of the matching coin, what we believe to be matching coin, that's on display in the museum. So if you're around Dayton, Ohio, please go and have a look. Great place. Um, and superimpose that over the coin on the moon. And we can see it's an exact match. And if we uh, uh, change the opacity of, of that, it just really pops, you know, how much detail we can see in this coin. And that was to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Air Force. That was important to Duke. Um, as well as his family, was his time in the Air Force. So I thought it was an appropriate thing for the Air Force to cover. And then we think about, you know, they're still there on the moon after 50 years. Now, the, the beta cloth, will have the 64C sadly will have faded in the UV radiation, as will his family portrait. But as part of the promotion for the book, I secured a small amount of payload on the astrobotic mission, the Peregrine lander that's going to go back to the moon, hopefully at the end of this year. Um, and I contacted Charlie and said, what do you think if I send a tiny copy of that photograph back to the moon? Because it will have been bleached by now. This is amazing. And he loved the idea. So that's actually going to go back to the moon. And it's going to be encapsulated, so it should last a lot longer than the original. But the coin, the coin will, you know, with no water, no wind, no erosion, you know, that will stay intact, like a lot of the footprints for probably millions of years. But irrespective of the longevity, you know, I think just these these moments at the end of EVA three, these human moments, just the perfect to, to hit home. Just this is what we've achieved. Yeah. People, these people, you know, the, the humans have made these incredible journeys. All right. Absolutely. So after all these great moments where your work has actually made, you know, headline news, uh, which is awesome, considering that Apollo happened <laughs> over almost over 50 years ago uh, yeah. you finally got a book coming out in september called apollo remastered uh I, i've seen the cover there's a beautiful photo of jim mcdivitt on it how much more can you say that's in the book that you haven't already teased out over the past couple of years yeah it's a really difficult balance of trying to put out interesting images and keep people engaged and like say get it in the news and to get people talking about the missions on, on the anniversaries and also holding enough back so that people will have some surprises when they go through the book. So that has been a really difficult balance. But yeah, there's going to, there's some great things that have uncovered, which have never been seen before. But it's not necessarily a book of, oh, wow, I've never seen that before, or this is how bad the images were, and ta-da, here's how good they can look. The idea is it's the ultimate photographic record. So it's, it's a huge book. You know, it'll weigh about three and a half kilograms you'll know when it drops through your letterbox um if you do pre-order it because it'll the house will probably shake and that was that was key to try and get enough in there so there's about 400 images wow and really when i started the project I'd, a book wasn't in my mind i didn't really know how i'd share them i just knew it was something that had to be done um i get really frustrated when i see some really iconic images that are presented actually really quite badly. It's a bit like if someone was to write an article about Apollo 11 and they misquote Armstrong's one small step speech. Yeah. You know, this is, it's too important for this not to be correct, for it not to be as good as it, as it can be seen, as, as clear as possible. Um, I can't think of any film in existence that deserves that level of attention as the missions and the photographs from Apollo. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Are there any big plans to launch the book? Have we got any big events happening? There's something in London, I believe, right? Yes. So another thing we're going to do to launch the book is there will be uh, an exhibition at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Amazing. Uh, That's the 20th of September. So that'll be on there for six weeks. And there will be 50 large-scale photographic prints uh, covering the whole from Apollo 7 right through to Apollo 17. And that'll almost envelop the whole hall. So... Anyone that goes to watch a show there, we'll walk past them and we'll be able to see them. There'll be some specific open days as well, and the free for people could, to go along and and see them. And the images have kind of gone a bit full circle because this is an analog film. They were never designed to be seen digitally, and that's part of the problem that they're often in not particularly good states when we see them because we'll just take the scan and people just maybe increase the brightness yeah. and publish that image. But because it's analog film, it needs a lot of digital enhancement to, to make it look as good as it can so we've got these direct scans of the original flight film now and then but when I'm printing them for the exhibition they're going to be actual photographic prints so that digital file is translated to laser light and it's called a c print so that laser light then exposes on photosensitive paper so it becomes a photograph again which was the original intention so there'll be these large-scale 50 images at the Albert Hall, and I'm hoping after that six-week stint that it's going to move to another location. I can't say where yet because it's not finalised, but further north than London. <laughs> and then it'll be in Dubai in February. And wow. That's what I'm working on next is, is trying to get the exhibition out there so people can go and see these on a larger scale. This is blowing my mind, right, on so many levels. It started with you in your office just working on the Neil Armstrong image. At that point, did you think that you would end up headline news, exhibition at the Royal Albert Hall, a three and a half kilogram book coming through people's doors? That must have just blown your own mind as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just gone so well. It's, it's bizarre. At, at every stage, I kind of dream of what would be the ultimate next step. And every time it seems to happen, and I'm kind of here thinking, Ooh, is it when the book comes out, is something going to go wrong? Yeah. I mean, tomorrow I'm in London, actually, to go through the digital proofs of the book. So that's where we make sure what I know is correct on screen is going to be translated and print. Yeah. And course. anyone that's printed a digital photograph before <laughs> will probably aware it can come out very differently. Yeah. So at every stage I'm thinking, is, thing, is something going to go wrong? So, yeah, I am just amazed at from that one image where I am now. And it, but it's, and it's partly, it's a huge thanks to, you know, NASA's this, got this open source policy where these images are available for anyone that wants to do this type of work to just go and do it. You know, I've been able to, to do that. And it's thanks to, to that policy, really, that I've been able to do it. Um, and these, these new scans of the original flight film are just a godsend. And they're, they're incredible. Super high resolution, high bit depth scans of the actual film that was in the actual camera on the moon amazing and that's allowed me to to do a lot of this so yeah it's gone amazingly well and now of course like you know you're contacting charlie duke and putting another photo for him on the moon and things like that i mean it's it's just quite incredible how this has just opened so many doors for you for this thing that was a childhood hobby like myself i mean i'm having a similar thing with the podcast but nowhere near the level that you have obviously but it's just blowing my mind how how it's just stemmed from you just wanting to see Armstrong on the moon and then all of this has happened. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we've had some questions from a couple of our Patreon subscribers, if that's all right. Yeah. The first is from John Wisenhunt, who says, I'm curious about the colour references on the lunar surface. There seems to be very few. Was the Noman scale device the astronauts carried still a useful reference? Yeah, no, it's not really, because I'd have to actually have a copy. And actually colour... <laughs> Colour is one thing that's so important to get right because there are some images, for example, one of the most iconic images ever, photographs ever taken, in fact, is that man on the moon photograph of Aldrin. Yeah. And in almost every version of that photograph, the colour is, it's been desaturated. So whoever's processed that film has had this actual misconception that the moon is, must be perfectly grey and the spacesuit must be perfectly white. So if there's any colour, it's been desaturated so that that becomes the case. But actually, he's illuminated almost entirely by reflected light. 
because the sun's behind him and that reflected light is bounced off the lunar module which is next to him so in fact he's bathed in this really stunning orange yellow light wow so it's important then then once you understand what what the light source is is not to edit that out is to keep yeah. that in because it's all part of the visual storytelling absolutely but i mean there are color casts on the film because of its age uh there's color casts created in um in the scanning process photographs through the window of the command module because you've got a slightly different makeup to the windows in the lunar module have a slightly different color tone so getting the color right it, it's still quite subjective but what i've done is just researched and researched the transcripts any comments the astronauts have made getting in touch with those that Apollo astronauts that are still with us to go over the images and say, you know, do these look right? So, yeah, color is, a, is an absolutely key thing to get right. Another question from Don Irwin. He asked, can you tell us about the process you used for selecting the photos? Was it, you know, when you see it thing or did you start out with a goal you wanted the images to convey? Really difficult. So as I say, there were 35,000 photographs and I had <laughs> to go through every one just in case something was missed. Sometimes in the images, was all the very underexposed so you can't you should just see a glint of light so for example the front cover all i could see was that reflection of the uh, docking window which as it transpires is, is reflected off mcdivitt's bubble helmet so i thought there's probably a person in that shot let's download that one and, and look into that so that was quite a long difficult process and i ended up with about a thousand that are fully edited and then selecting 400 was just nearly impossible but yeah, what I, what I try to do is, it's not just going to be a book of things that no one's ever seen before. It's it'll have all the classics, or it'll have images which, kind of. And there's one on Apollo 16 when the station keeping. And if people go and have a look at my Twitter, they'll they'll see it because I'm going to put this one out. And it's a photograph taken by Charlie Duke in the lunar module as they're orbiting the moon. And it's of uh, the command module, of course, with Mattingly on board. And adjacent to him is a perfect blue earth has just risen above the lunar horizon. And some images like that just instantly convey just the awe-inspiring nature of human spaceflight. You know, he is two people over to the moon photographing a spacecraft that's come from that planet a quarter of a million miles away. So I, I like to include those kinds of images. Yes, images that reveal something new and tell us something that we can learn even 50 years later. And also the in chronological order. So we'll go from a bit of pre-Apollo and then I cover every mission from Apollo 7 to Apollo 17. And part of the equation is picking images that help to tell the story. So there'll be yeah. captions on every image and within each mission, their chronological order. So you can follow the mission. And there's pertinent quotes from the astronauts. So I found the moments that the photographs were taken in the transcripts and worked out who took the photograph, what camera was used, what can we see? Uh, and some really great quotes. And the purpose of that is I've always wanted to almost ride along on this incredible journey. I want to know what it's like to walk on the moon. I want to see what they saw. And having these captions and having these quotes put these amazing images into even more perspective. We can connect to them even more and imagine ourselves making these incredible journeys. That's unreal. When you've been doing this work, do you send it to the astronauts for their feedback? And what is that like, if that's the thing that you do? Yeah, like I say, it's, it's been very important for this to be an accurate record. It's very easy to over-enhance digitally, given the technology that we've got. So speaking to the astronauts that are still with us, going through the transcripts to look at any clues about what they saw. But yeah, I mean, I've had Zoom calls with... Rusty Swicar and I showed him that particular image that he the front cover that he took, but I showed him before and after, and he was he was just like, how 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 can we go from this to this? And he doesn't remember ever seeing that photograph. Yeah, and I was said, well, you took that. That's <laughs> such an incredible portrait, uh, and you took that photograph. I sent last week the one um, of the beta cloth with sixty four C on it to Charlie Duke, and he didn't remember leaving that piece of beta cloth. Wow. So even those that were there are seeing things that they'd forgotten about. That's been great. That's really uh, cool. Yeah. Before I get to my next question, I love that portrait of McDivitt because I've seen the original 
in the past before it. I was like, man, it's so dark, but you can tell, yeah. you know, it's there's a guy in there and he's he's got, you know, a five o'clock shadow and you can tell he's working and it's I love that portrait and the fact that it's a cover, I just I, I just think that's amazing because to me it's like a perfect portrait of an Apollo astronaut. Somebody at work. Yeah, and he's kind of it looks like he's looking up in awe. We know he's not. But yeah. I like the fact that it looks like he's looking up in awe at, you know, out of the window. And that's how I would hope readers will look, you know, as they're looking through the images. But the reality is even better in that, as you say, it's this it's actually a very historic moment in that he's undertaking the docking at this moment. So he's looking up through the docking window. And of course, that's the first docking in space, you know, with an internal crew transfer. We see it all the time now with yeah. you know, the astronauts coming through the tunnel and greeting each other. This is the first time it ever happened. So it's also a very historic moment. And as a portrait, it's just, the lighting is amazing. Now it's yeah. being edited. So that had to be the cover. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that portrait. That's probably my favorite photo of McDivitt ever. So yeah. uh, excellent. Uh, I do have one more question. So when are we going to get Skylab unleashed? When are we getting that? <laughs> just kidding. I'm I'm just messing around. Poor Dave's like, I got to edit that out. Emily. <laughs> You said, I mean, what, what's coming next is um, probably a, quite obviously Gemini. I, I, I want to undertake the same project, but with with Gemini. Gemini is that one of those, you know, the program which kind of is in that awkward position in between the first ever flights into space with Mercury and the incredible moon landings. But of course, there were some amazing moments in the history of space flight during the Gemini mission and the photography is absolutely incredible and you watch a lot of the hollywood blockbuster sci-fi movies particularly films like interstellar and you can see gemini you, you can see that they've referenced the gemini photography it's just got this uber cool retro feel to them and they had slightly different camera they had a hasselblad super wide camera with a wider angle lens and the photographs for that are just absolutely incredible it's great at capturing the whole spacecraft particularly when they're on their eva Mm. Of course, there's a lot more photographs of the Earth rather than the Moon, so it'll have a very diff different feel to Apollo, but that's certainly something that I'd, I'd like to work on next. Awesome. Yeah, Gemini is just so uh, underrated. Nobody really talks about it a lot, so that's going to be amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Good to hear. And one final one from me. Uh, I'm looking behind your left shoulder, and there is a, what looks like a Hasselblad in your display cabinet there. Yeah. Just because I'm a nosy geek. Is that a replica? Is that an actual artifact from the Apollo program or just something similar from the era? It's only of historic significance because it coincidentally is from 1968. I bought it on eBay. Uh, it's a Hasselblad 500EL. So that's the exact camera model that they did adapt and take onto the moon. So the HEC and the HDC, the moon camera was based on that exact model. So they adapted the commercial model uh, to be used in space on the moon. So when I bought it, I didn't know how old it was. It could have been from the 80s. Obviously, first thing I did was check the serial number online. Uh, and it's from 1968, which is Perfect. the exact year that they were developing that exact camera to use on the moon. So that was a good that was a good purchase. Well, thanks for answering that one. I've been staring at that <laughs> since the start of the interview. I've been getting rather distracted, but it's a beautiful thing. So thanks for that. Uh, and thank you for coming on the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. I've been a massive fan of what you've been doing since I first discovered you. And I'm glad we finally got to talk about it. And wish you all the best of luck with the book. I've pre-ordered mine. I hope our listeners do too. Uh, I hope my postman's been working out. Yeah. <laughs> Emily's been doing some sums. For our American listeners, the kilogram conversion is about seven pounds. Yeah, roughly, roughly. I did sort of kind of nu uh, nuke math, <laughs> which is very rough, but it's around seven pounds. To be particularly so. nerdy, it's about the same weight as a Hasselblad camera. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, there even we go. better. That's even, even better. better. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. All right, Andy, thank you so much. Thanks thank very you. much. Thanks to you. Uh, John, do you remember where the bubble was on the top of the PSE? In the middle. Very good. Should have known. It's any work we couldn't come back unless we put the bubble in the middle. <laughs> One, this book's going to be incredible. Two, I can't wait for the Albert Hall event. Three, the fact that he is sending that photo of Charlie Duke's family back to the moon is. 
do you know when you just get tingles down your spine when you're hearing someone talk? I was just like, what? That's so cool. So cool. Yeah, I like the the 64C. I think that was the the class. I think it was 64C. I love the fact that that's getting showcased as well because that that class had a lot of legends. Absolutely. So that's really cool that, you know, he sort of tracked that little, you know, factoid down because I think if a lot of people just randomly saw that, they wouldn't under they'd be like whatever, 60. In the military, they have a way of they name classes by year and by like section. Because I was in a class that had a similar name. Yeah. So uh, regular civilians might not have a clue what they like. What is that? You know, but that's a really neat, like a neat little touch to sort of say, okay, you know, that class was full of legends and there's like some kind of meaning to that. You know, it wasn't just random. I'm so excited. I do have to say, and I did say this while we were interviewing, one of my favorite portraits of any astronaut is on the cover of that book. Mm. the McDivitt portrait is just, I love it because it's just such a neat portrait of somebody at work doing their job, yeah. you know? And you think when you think of somebody doing their job, you think somebody at a desk or someone at a cubicle. Nowadays, you might think somebody at home, you know, on, at a desk or something like that. But no, this guy is, <laughs> he's rendezvous, helping to rendezvous two spacecraft, you know, for the first time yeah. in human history. I mean, it, it's just beautiful. And I love the fact that, McDivitt sort of, you know, he is a five o'clock shatter. You can tell he's been in space for a few days. I just love it. It's a great portrait of just an astronaut at work. So I, I, I just love it. Yeah, I think it's a great choice as well for the, the cover because it's not an obvious astronaut in terms of for the mainstream market, right? It's not one of the iconic photos. It's not someone that people necessarily will know the name of apart from people like us, right? So it's it's showcasing, look, there's so much here that you don't know about. Come and explore. Come and explore what, what we've got to see here and, and this momentous, historic uh, Apollo program, which not enough of us know about. As he pointed out, you know, people thought that the Alan Shepard golf photos with Neil Armstrong like that's a I always joke about it you know when you speak to people if you're lucky they can say Neil Armstrong was the first person to walk on the moon but some people say Lance Armstrong and then if you ask them to name someone else they say <laughs> Buzz Lightyear you know these are true conversations that I've had Louis Armstrong yeah exactly right it's 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 uh it's pretty crazy and and he has been so successful in getting these anniversary events in the news and making people talk about Apollo again. And I think it's wonderful. If if you're not following him on Twitter and Instagram, go. Well, go do it now because it, he posts great stuff. And it, uh, even for us who think we've seen it all, it, we learn so much from him and, and his work. So um, it's great that he's doing it. You know, I thought I'd, oh, I've seen everything, you know, but him talking about the, you know, the famous portrait of Buzz on the moon that's usually the portrait people use like with Apollo books on the cover, yeah. right? Or, you know, like it's probably the most famous one I can think of other than maybe Jim Irwin saluting on the moon and maybe John Young jumping, yeah. maybe. But most people have no idea who's in the suit. Anyway. Yeah, for sure. Most people think it's it's the same. Most people like it's Neil Armstrong. You know? yeah, yeah, It's Neil Armstrong, like for each picture. I love how he was talking. I think he was talking about this photo that, you know, he remixed it so you can actually see the dimension in it. You know, it's not just the moon is all gray and the, his suit is all white. You know, there's actually this beautiful, you know, kind of diffused lighting because, you know, the sun is hitting him. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. the sun's hitting the lunar you module. Know, the sun's hitting that. Yeah. yeah and then reflecting you know? off this orange glow. Yeah. And it's it's almost like going from black and white to color and you're seeing sort of the unseen dimension, I guess. Yeah. I do want to mention, you know, there are other people who've put out rare photos, you know, like um, J.L. Pickering and yeah. John Bisney have a few books with a lot of amazing photos Absolutely. in it. But um, I do want to say, you know, these people like Andy and J.L., what they're doing, it's been indispensable because um, as somebody who was born after Apollo, you know, a lot of what I saw as a kid were the crappy kind of copies or the crappy photos and books and now we're getting to see what they really look like you know versus what we thought they looked like yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's similar to that apollo 11 movie as well isn't it you know yeah it's, it's bringing, yeah. bringing it to life and that work makes it look so real i find like ah yes look it's there it's right there it's amazing yeah 
it makes it look like, you know, it happened yesterday. Like when I saw the Apollo 11 movie, I was like, the launch looked like it could have just happened. You know, <laughs> like, Absolutely. oh, yeah, it just happened yesterday. You know, and it, I mean, that's how the clarity was. It was just incredible. And, you know, when people do this with photos, like there's some photos I've, I've seen, like um, there's a great photo uh, by Tom uh, Usiak of Apollo 16. I, I think it was a, a maybe the night before, a few nights before, but it's at dusk. You know, and it's a really beautiful sunset scene. You see the Saturn V, and it looks like it could have been taken yesterday. I mean, it, yeah. I love stuff like that. Yeah, me too. So I hope that people have checked out the article that Andy has written for the Air Force magazine. We'll put some links in the show notes, as always. He's also tweeted about it. Uh, so check out, as we've already said, check him out on Twitter. But he also tweeted about the other photo he was talking about of the command module against the Earth. Uh, above the lunar surface and alongside that he posted the transcript from that time the mission transcript from that time when they were having some trouble with the service module engine i think that's correct uh, which was needed to get them home and this is before the landing took place and there was even talk about how they may need to have to do an apollo 13 style maneuver using the lunar module engine to get them home so pretty dramatic stuff and the crew had to station keep for four hours while Houston were trying to figure out what was going on and they were actually struggling to keep track of each other and they were even concerned they were going to fly into each other at, at one point because they couldn't see each other the transcript will raise your heart rate I guarantee you as you read it you'll just be like this is so tense we often forget that these guys actually had to fly these almost primitive spacecraft, right? And and, and make a lot of the calculations themselves and to understand orbital mechanics yeah, around the moon which is crazy yeah, exactly which is even yeah 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 for sure and uh, unlike the modern automated spacecraft that we see today so that photo posted alongside that transcript has absolutely got people talking about this and increased the knowledge of both space enthusiasts and the general public about Apollo 16 and the 50th anniversary. It wasn't all plain sailing. It was a, a tough mission right to the end. Uh, and it's it just really is amazing what Andy is doing. Yeah, I, I, I looked at that tweet uh, just a few minutes ago. I've been at work today and I, I just looked at Twitter and I read over the transcript. I've read it years ago, but I, I looked over it again and I was, and I, like you said, you know, I, I was very um, taken aback at, you know, they had to basically touch on their not, this is 1972, you know, I mean, you got to think about it. The United States had done their first rendezvous in space with another spaceship in late 1965. So that's not a lot of time, really. I mean, that's only, what, uh, seven years, maybe almost seven years, six, yeah. six and a half years. So they go from, you know, making, you know, very kind of rudimentary rendezvous to having to station keep around the moon, which is very complex compared to, you know, what they had initially been doing. And all the time, the guy's suits were overheating, so they were hot, not feeling great. It's a tough read, you know. And All I got to say is I'm really glad that all got sorted because think of what would have happened if Apollo 16 had gotten canceled and they didn't land. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get political here but it would have furthered uh, uh you know nixon's belief that okay we got to cancel everything yeah I, I doubt we'd have had a 17 who knows where we'd be right now in terms of the space program there's there's so many other possible what ifs if that had happened maybe uh you or some of our amazing alternative history fans might be able to write something to do with that that'd be quite interesting yeah that's a that's a neat thought what if apollo 16 hadn't happened you know, because yeah. my thinking is they would have convinced Nixon, well, this is way too dangerous. We can't do this anymore, even though, you know, stuff happens, unfortunately. And I think Apollo was as uh, safe as any space program is going to be, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was watching From the Earth to the Moon last night. I watch it all the time. That's it's awesome. It's just so good. And you it know is. how the... the the Apollo 16 episode in that is very much, a, it's the wives episode, right? Triggered by the fact that John Young had recently split from his wife at the time of this mission. So this mission didn't really get the treatment, the the, the real in-depth look at the mission, because it focused on that aspect of the early space program. The impact that the uh, early space program had on those families Again, what Andy's doing here, particularly in highlighting Charlie Duke's family moment, it's just really nice to kind of just highlight that. Because a lot of people have seen that photo of, of Charlie Duke's family on the moon. But 
it should be highlighted, shouldn't it? You know, Charlie Duke and Dottie are still together and they're such a wonderful couple. From the afternoon paints a lot of those guys in a real bad light, but not all of them were horrific to their wives, were they? So yeah, uh, it, it's again a reminder of that, I suppose, as well. I don't know where I was going with that. I just feel it's nice to readdress that balance every now and then. Yeah, I think with, you know, some of the some shows, they're, they're sort of, you know, artistic license and stuff like that. And great. I yeah, there were divorces happening, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s at NASA. I think the veneer was starting to crack a little bit, you know, and people began to realize, OK, these are real people. Yeah. They're not infallible. They you know, but I do agree. I think it's nice that we have that little personal touch with the with the Duke family. That's really special i think i i totally i totally get it yeah me too i'm glad andy has highlighted this anyway if you want to hear the full unedited interview with andy you can go over to our patreon page where you can watch that uh that's there for you just go to patreon.com forward slash space and things And so on to this week's news. Since we recorded the last podcast, there have been three launches, two in China and one in California. And as always, information about payloads and videos of those launches, if available, can be found in our show notes on spaceandthingspodcast.com. I'll follow the direct link in your show notes in your podcast provider. We appear to be in a period of comings and goings. The three Taikonauts who were aboard China's Tiangong space station have returned home in their Shenzhou 13 capsule after spending uh, six months in orbit, which is a new Chinese record. The longest previous record was 92 days, and that was also on this new space station last year. So this station really is becoming a game changer for the Chinese. Absolutely. And while the Chinese have returned safely, we're currently waiting for the Axiom 1 crew, who we discussed at length last week, to return from the ISS. They were supposed to be home already, but due to bad weather in the landing zone, they've postponed their undocking with the ISS. While we're talking about Axiom 1, though, this other story has popped up this week, which is relevant. Last week, we mentioned that they were doing some hologram studies, you may remember. Well, it turns out this wasn't the first time that this has happened on the ISS. Wow. I know, right? This story is going to blow your mind. In fact, last year, NASA flight surgeon Dr. Joseph Schmid and Fernando de la Pena Laca, the CEO of software provider AXA Aerospace, were the first humans to be holoported from Earth to space. Schmid said in an interview... This is a completely new manner of human communication across vast distances. Furthermore, it's a brand new way of our human exploration where our human entity is able to travel off the planet. Our physical body is not there, but our human entity absolutely is there. So apparently this is a new technology at all, but it's the first time it's been used in an environment this challenging with users this far apart. And this all took place last October. Tom Arpesque was was the guy on the space station at wow. the time making it all happen. But we're only just learning about it. Crazy stuff. So a little minor digression here, but I think it's worth talking about nonetheless because it relates to last week. And I would absolutely urge you to check out the show notes for the article about this story with the images too, because it will blow your mind. It doesn't make sense that it's happening now, but it is. Yeah, it's real life Star Trek stuff. It, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And with the Chinese Taikonauts coming home and the Axiom 1 crew hopefully coming home shortly, not not that I'm sure they're upset they get a couple extra days <laughs> in space, uh, the crew four astronauts are at Kennedy Space Center ready to launch on the SpaceX Dragon capsule called Freedom, which was scheduled for April 23rd, but is currently delayed until they know when the Axiom crew is landing. This is the first flight for Freedom and will be the final Dragon capsule built by SpaceX. Uh, giving them a fleet of four. The crew consists of NASA astronauts Jell Lindgren, who's commanding uh, the mission, Jessica Watkins and Robert Hines, and ESA astronaut Samantha Christopher Reddy. Of course, they're, once they're on board the ISS, the crew three astronauts will return home. Everyone's coming and going. Meanwhile, on the space station, two cosmonauts, Oleg Artemyev and Denis Matviev, performed a six-and-a-half-hour spacewalk to begin the work needed to add a European-built robotic arm to the outside of the Russian segment of the station. 
This is the first of what would could be seven spacewalks to complete this upgrade. Once completed, the European robotic arm, ERA, as they're calling it, will be the first device able to service the Russian segment of the station, which has previously been out of reach of the Canada Arm 2 and the Japanese Experiment Module Remote Manipulator System which is a mouthful. However, <laughs> tensions between the European Space Agency and Roscosmos continue to become fractured as ESA has announced they will no longer cooperate with Russia on Russia's lunar missions. These are a series of robotic missions which have been taking place for years, but not with ESA involved for the foreseeable future. Yep, it really is a shame. And an update from Mars. The Perseverance rover has arrived at an ancient river delta, the mission team members are hoping that the Delta will be a veritable geologic feast and hope that they may find some fossilized signs of life. Also, the Ingenuity helicopter has flown its 25th flight and set new personal best for speeds and distance, traveling at 704 meters at 5.5 meters per second for 161.3 seconds. A quick calculation in my head, and I can reveal that's about... Uh, 2,310 feet traveled at 12.3 miles an hour. You're welcome. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing maths. Right. Fantastic. You are welcome, American listeners. Anyway, <laughs> that flight took place on April 8th, almost a year after its first flight, which was April 19th last year. So that was a year ago. Yeah. That is crazy. So one year of flying with no signs of uh, slowing down, and it wasn't meant to last very long, so that's incredible. Yeah, ridiculous. We always mention it, but it never gets old, does it? Never gets old. Oh, anyway, yeah. and finally, back on Earth, the Artemis One rocket will roll back to the Vehicle Assembly Building at Kennedy Space Center, and it will do this early next week to address the issues found in the wet dress rehearsal. The two big problems were a faulty valve in the launch tower and a hydrogen leak in one of the umbilical lines connecting the tower to the rocket. There has been no new timeline announced for a rerun of the wet dress rehearsal, and I'm pretty sure that we could do a good sweepstake, actually, to raise money for taking up space and when this rocket might launch. Something to ponder, for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, annoyingly with this, the problems aren't something they can solve on the pad. They have to bring it back. But, you know, this yeah. is why we test. Exactly, and... and you know, people, I noticed on Twitter, people got people got real wound up, you know, when that was announced. But I, I, I'm pretty sure the space shuttle was rolled back. It, it had a ton of delays for just separate missions. So you'd rather just be safe than sorry. You know, we want to see this thing go off in, in one piece and go perfectly, hopefully. So I totally get it. And 98% of what they tested went well. Exactly. Like, <laughs> for a first run through, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I, I read somewhere this week the first uh, Apollo Saturn V ret test took 18 days uh, and they got through this in a lot less than that, even though it wasn't perfect. But that one wasn't perfect either. You know, this is what we do. This is why, why it has to happen. Exactly. Yep. We need to remember that. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Andy Saunders as much as we did. We've got two very cool interviews confirmed for the next couple of weeks with some other stuff simmering away underneath, which could give us a glorious summer. We really hope you stick around to find out all about it. And as Dave said at the top of the show, a massive thank you to all of our Patreons past and present. Um, we know that finances are being really squeezed at the moment, so some of you all are having to make the decision to pause your membership. But we also appreciate every person who's joined us at all levels uh, for whatever amount of time they've managed to help. And we hope that you might want to come back in the future. Y'all be invited to our 100th show plans as will all who join from now. Yes, our big secretive show 100 plans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, we hope to see you next week, and thanks again for all your support. We had a lovely review from JJX189 on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you taking the time to do that, JJX. If any of you else don't fancy writing a review, if you could leave us a star-based rating, that's a great way of supporting what we do. Anyway, until next time, don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. No new jokes this week. Just couldn't face upsetting Todd again. <laughs> Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.